0: Well, good morning. good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you all here. Um, over the last few weeks, we've been going through um, selected chapters um, from um, my new book that's going to be released at the end of the month, hopefully. Um, and we've been just taking certain chapters, and each one has a topic to it. And uh, so we've gone through, like, love and presence and trust and and uh, different issues, different topics, different realities, I suppose, in our lives, that when we look at them from Jesus' point of view as an ancient Eastern Aramaic man, everything sort of changes. And as Jesus always does, he takes an issue that we think we know, and he just turns it back to front, 180 degrees. And he shows us what it looks like from the other end of the telescope. It's it's always amazing how he's able to do that. How he's able to take issues and just turn them around inside out, upside down, back to front. And when we look at them through that, we see something that we never saw before. And we see a clear path back to the Father's love that maybe was not clear before. And that's what we're trying to do here. The original challenge that Jesus gave us was to be willing to do that, be willing to shed everything that we think we know so that we can take life and turn it around and see it through the Father's eyes, see it what, what it looks like from a place of unity, connection, fullness, instead of the place of individual form, lack, emptiness, all of that. So this is what we've been trying to do. And this morning I wanted to do... Another one of the chapters. And um, there is a epitaph, epigraph, epigraph that happens at the beginning and the end of each chapter that kind of sets this topic from a traditional point of view, the way that we are normally used to dealing with the issue. And then as we go through our little journey by chapter by chapter, we get to a challenging way to look at the same issue. So the epitaph for this particular chapter is that we know god's intent through creed and doctrine all right since the reformation 500 years ago that's what we have agreed as western christians is the way that we know about god's intent the way that we know about his revelation is through creed and through the doctrine that the church creates based on that scriptural passage right so we know god's intent through creed and doctrine on our own we risk being led into error. On our own, we risk being led into error. And I think you probably heard that before. I know I did. You know, don't get led into error. That was always on the lips of the pastors and the teachers. But the pastors that I went to, that I was working with when I was still in pastoral training, went even a step further, because when I mentioned to them that I thought I wanted to go to an actual seminary, an actual accredited um, college, divinity school, they discouraged me and they tried to stop me Actually, they succeeded in stopping me, saying that modern seminaries are not where you go to find your faith. Modern seminaries are where you go to lose your faith. Okay, so what is going on here? What are they telling you when they tell you, you know, all of these things, and they're trying to keep you? You know, if you go out on your own, you're going to get led into error, and even if you go to these heathens out there, they're going to lead you astray. They're saying, stay indoors, Right? Stay inside the line. Stay inside this safe place that we have carved out in this church. But I'll tell you what. Any faith that is dependent on the maintenance of ignorance, got that? Any faith that is dependent on the maintaining of ignorance is indistinguishable from superstition. Now that's a big statement. First of all, what do I mean by superstition? You know, if you look up superstition in the dictionary, what is it going to tell you? Superstition is actually supernatural cause and effect. In other words, you take two things that are completely unrelated, but you give a causal connection to them supernaturally. Okay, in a way that that has no basis in fact. If I carry around this rabbit's foot, I'm gonna have good luck. If I walk under that ladder, I'm gonna have bad luck. Right? If I pay my tithes to the church, God is gonna make sure my mortgage gets paid. These are supernatural cause and effect. And what we're doing here, basically in this scenario, is we're saying that if we just stay clear of any competing information, if we only look through the narrow slice, the, 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 the space between the planks of the fence that our church has created, if we put our blinders on, if we kind of put our fingers in our ears and and hum to ourselves and don't hear anything else, then we can hang on to our belief system. And God is going to honor that belief system. God is going to love us and approve of us and save us. But only if. That's supernatural cause and effect. Any faith that depends on maintaining ignorance Is not valuable. It's not going to take us where we want to go. And this is something that we really have to deal with. We must be allowed to question. We must be allowed to move out and see everything that is happening and then see where our faith leads us. We've got to be allowed to do that. In fact, this is what the scriptures are really telling us. It's interesting how we got so far afield when all the clues are right there. Take a look at Acts 17, starting at verse 10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. And so the Bereans are celebrated in our tradition, aren't they? Haven't you heard of the Bereans before? There's a whole Berean Bible society. There's a Berean Bible that is translated by the Bible Society. And they are honored and they are revered in Christian tradition for be the ones, being the ones who really took the scriptures seriously. But look at what it's saying that they're doing. They questioned, they tested. They went back day by day to find out whether the things that they were being taught were really true. These guys blow into their town. Paul, Silas, the other evangelists, and they start teaching them things about Jesus. They don't just believe it willy-nilly. They don't just accept what they've been told. They take it back into the woodshed and they work it out. And they decide whether these things are so based on their best lights of going through the scriptures. This is what is really revered and held up to us as an ideal. These were the noble-minded Jews, not like the ones who just accepted without thinking. Right? When I was coming up (laughs) 25, 30 years ago, I was always digging. I was always asking questions. I was always annoying my teachers because I kept coming back to them and back to them. In fact, one of them finally looked at me and said, you know what, I need to charge you double. (laughs) That was the nature of it. I just wanted to know so badly. I wanted to know what was going on. I was asking about the difficult passages. What about these difficult passages? There's so much. If you just read the red letters of the, new, of, the of the Gospels, of the New Testament, Jesus' actual words, there are so many phrases and passages in there that make so little sense in English. And I was asking about these passages. What about these? What's going on? I remember one... Pastor, finally, just tell me, just keep on reading. Scripture will interpret itself. Have any of you heard that one before? (laughs) Scripture or the Bible will interpret itself. Just keep reading. Okay, I'm not seeing a lot of heads going up and down. I thought I was the only one. And then I read a book by David Biven called Understanding the Difficult Words of Jesus. He relates the exact same story. (laughs) That he would go to his pastors and say, what about this, what about this, what about this? Just keep reading some The Bible will interpret itself. But his next line was, you can read till the cows come home. You can read forever. And unless and until you translate that back into the original Hebrew or Aramaic, the Bible is not going to open itself up. It's not going to in English because we are two translations away from the original thought form. So when I heard that, it sounded to me like a cop-out. You all know what a cop-out is? (laughs) You know, it's interesting to me when when, when I... Why is it a cop-out? Why is it called a cop-out? You know, me, the English teacher, I had to go check it out. Do you want to know? Just for free? Kind of sidebar here? Cop is a verb that means to grab or to seize. It probably comes from the Latin capere or uh, a French word that sounds kind of the same, but it means to grab or seize. That's why we call police cops, because they grab you, they seize you, they arrest you, right? You know? And so if you cop an attitude, you're grabbing an attitude. You're taking an attitude, right? If you cop a plea, that usually that used to mean plea bargaining and usually bargaining down to a lower sentence so that you evaded or you escaped the greater sentence. And so now it's come down into our vernacular as meaning an evasion, an unsatisfactory answer that you use to kind of squidge out of the... And I thought, hey, the Bible will interpret itself, that's an evasion. That's a cop-out. But you know what? As I think about it now, what it at least does? It points to an experiential process. Now, that's pretty good. I like that. The Bible will interpret itself, what? If we keep reading it, if we keep going through a process. Now, I think there's more to it. I think that we do need to bring it back into Hebrew. But at least there's an experiential process going on here. There's something more than just, you know... This is the way it is. We have interpreted for you. You just believe it and you're saved. Don't believe it and bad things are going to happen. So, this was this idea here. Then I remember asking, How do we know that we're born again? Being born again was such a big part of our church's culture. They were pretty charismatic. And some people believe that, yeah, just speaking in tongues means you're born again. It was that simple. But once again, when you get deeper into it, how do you know? That's what was a question that was burning with me because people were praying for me to be born again and I didn't know what it meant and I didn't know how to grab onto it. I didn't know how to cop it, (laughs) I guess you could say. And someone said, you just know that you know. All right, that is probably true and completely unhelpful at the same time. What am I supposed to do with that? You'll just know that you know. Um, But at least again... It pointed to an experiential process. There, there, was What sounded like to me is that if I just persevere, if I keep moving in a direction, eventually something is going to break through, and I am going to know that I know. I don't know how that's going to happen, but I'll just keep moving forward. A little more development of that thought would have been nice at the time. You know, maybe could have cut a few years off my travel, but there it is. The The best example of what I thought was a cop-out, and some of you have heard this story before, was that when my life was really a mess, you know, some 30 years ago, uh, I remember seeing the white cross uh, against the, the hills at Malibu Canyon when I'd drive up and down the, the Pacific Coast Highway, and so I, it just flashed into my mind, you know. I was I was just hurting so badly and wanted something that made sense so badly that I just started driving. And when I got to the cross, I just turned off and kept it in the center of my windshield. I had no idea where I was going. I just, if there was a turn, I just tried to keep the cross in the center of my windshield. And eventually, I got to the top of the hill and found myself at Sarah Retreat up there. It's a retreat center that is run by the Franciscans. And uh, I went into the lobby and said, I. What can I do? Can I just get a room? And they said, yeah, you can. Great. So I just booked a room and I think I stayed there for three days or so the first time without any direction, not knowing what I'm doing. But they did say that I could book a session with one of the priests if I wanted to. And so I did that, and that started a friendship I had with two priests that were stationed there. One was a diocesan priest, Jim Fallon. I'll remember his name and see his face till the day I die. And, of course, Emery Tang, who was a a Franciscan. And uh, he was the one that I talk about so much because he was a first-generation Chinese-American. And he stood precisely astride east and west. And he spoke fluent Chinese, he, he, he could write fluently and beautifully the calligraphy uh, of the Chinese alphabet and language. And yet he was Western, of course, he had been living in the United States his whole life. His parents were from the old country. But his mind and the way he approached life was so Eastern also. And the way he approached Catholicism, because I grew up Catholic, and he wasn't approaching Catholicism and saying things I'd ever heard any Catholic priest say. I remember telling him one time, why do you stay a Catholic, thinking the way you do and teaching the way you teach? He just laughed at me, and he said, I've been a priest for 50 years. I'm going to die a priest. You know, to him it wasn't important that he agreed so much with Catholic theology, either culturally or even at the highest levels, but that he was part of this community and he was serving in the way that he served. And it didn't matter to him, all that stuff. And I would go, I, I kept coming back to Sarah, and as I got to know these two better, I'd book as much time as I could and, I was trying to understand what they were telling me, but they were telling me things that came from such a left field that I wasn't ready even to, let alone accept, I couldn't even really hear what it was that they were telling me. And I remember one session that we had that was a a group of of older men who came every year at the same time from their parishes and and their diocese to Sarah to have the retreat at the same time every year. And... uh, Emery Tang was, was leading the session, and he said, okay, you know, tell me why God sent Jesus to earth. And there was a beat for, for a few minutes, and then finally the hand started going up, and it was right out of the Baltimore Catechism to die for our sins. And, and Emery's reaction was to slap his forehead, you know, like, oh, I could have had a V8. You know, just a frustration was there for him. he said, why in the world would a father send his son to die? He sent his son to live. He sent his son to show his perfect love. And as the men were processing that and some angry retorts and, and murmurings were coming, you know, he, he finally just, all the frustration boiled over. And he said, you know what? You guys keep coming here every year. You don't change. You don't listen. Next year, just stay home. I'm sure the Chancery mailbag was very full that week. But this, this was the way that, he saw things so differently, and he wasn't the least bit shy about sharing it. He said something equally crazy to my way of thinking in another session, and I went to his office afterwards, and I wanted to debate him on it. And I had my Bible open to the right page, and I was all ready to go. And as soon as I opened my mouth, he just stuck his hand in my face, and his hand was about this big, and a big hand. And he said, stop. He goes, all I can tell you is what I'm convinced of you go become convinced of what you're convinced of and i thought that was a total cop out total evasion come on man it's right here let's let's talk about it and he wouldn't you know i'm sure he had done that a million times and realized that you can't argue with a made up mind right you can't fill a vessel that's already full i went in there made up i went in there full there was nothing he can do except to just stop you know go become convinced of what you're convinced of. And I thought that it was such a a, a cheap shot, and it took me several years to realize that is the only answer that any one of us can ever give to anybody else about spiritual matters. That's it. This is what I'm convinced of. This is what the sum of my life moments has brought me to. This is what animates my days. This is what allows me to get up every morning and deal with the things that I have to deal with and yet still feel that God is present, that I'm cared for, that in the end somehow everything is going to be well. This is what I'm convinced of. I'll tell you if you ask me. But it won't mean anything to you until you go And go through that experiential process. Put it through the meat grinder of your life. Take it into the streets and make it yours. And it doesn't matter if yours is not the same as mine or that you express it differently than me. That matters not. Go become convinced of what you're convinced of. Go find something that allows you to get up in the morning and deal with life on life's terms. If you can do that, then you are following Jesus This is what Jesus asked us to do. I want to read just a little bit from the book and see if this kind of brings the point home. Some things in life are not transferable, but at least the mess in my life had become, had created in me the burning need to be convinced of something, to be able to state that thing, whatever it was, with the conviction of E.T., Emery Tang, suddenly felt like life itself There was no turning back as I set out to become convinced of what I was convinced of. And as I now teach and write and work, I'm acutely aware of my own limitations. The limitations of anyone who tries to communicate an idea to another human. These things I am now convinced of can be spoken and written down, but not bestowed. That's different. Nor should they be. Matters can be brought to your attention, We can even decide to believe them, but we'll never speak them with E.T.'s conviction or Yeshua's authority, and we'll never displace the fear in our lives until we've traveled the journey ourselves, tasted and seen for ourselves the goodness of God's love. Encouraging engagement in the journey, that's the teacher's gift, not the imparting of information. Each one of us is responsible for his or her own journey to truth. No one can take it for us, and no one can give us his or hers. The ruby slippers that Dorothy wears can take her home at any moment, but no one can tell her how they work. She has to find out for herself. We will be convinced of the truth of something only when we have gone out and become convinced, submitted it to rigorous testing in the laboratory of our lives. People were amazed at Yeshua's teaching because he taught with authority, not as the Pharisees and the scribes taught. That is, Yeshua was the same person living or dying. His truths were part of the reality of his life and not a classroom exercise. Taste and see that the Lord is good, the Psalms tell us. Taste and see. Not sit and think. Taste and see. For us, as much as for the ancients, we need to get out of our minds and classrooms and into the streets of our lives to find God playing among us. Taste and see. I love that. Taste and see. Is there anything more intimate than tasting? Why the Eucharist? Why communion? To taste, to actually ingest, take that into us. Taste and see. We want to keep things always at arm's length, objectively out there someplace. And we're going to consider it in the abstract, we're going to consider it propositionally. Taste and see. That takes us into a completely different experience. The Jews called it yada or yada, which means to know, but it was that intimate experience of knowing that they're talking about. When God talks about knowing him, it's yada. It's that experiential tasting and seeing. Participating in a process of becoming, of really being partners with God. <laughs> you know, I remember. The first time that I said publicly that we are in partnership with God, you should have seen the reaction. Oh, it was not pretty. Why? Why was there such a negative reaction to talking about being in partnership with God? Well, I suppose because it implies some sort of equality. I mean, partners are equal, right? So it implies equality, and we're not equal with God. And so I get that. I get that. But you know what? Don't we partner with our dogs? Don't our dogs partner with us? We're not equal, but we're in partnership. We're in a symbiotic relationship. We benefit from each other's part in the relationship, and we don't have to be equal. Maybe it's not partnership so much as participation. Maybe that's a better word. Maybe that's a better word. Let's try that word. But you know what? Paul doesn't shrink away from any of these words. Take a look at what he says in 1 Corinthians one, starting at verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the New American Standard Version. But that word for fellowship there is koinonia. Now, that was a really famous word for a while. I don't hear it as much anymore, but you remember when koinonia was the big thing? Everything was koinonia groups, koinonia groups, and they're all about fellowship. But if you look up that word, you know what the first meaning is? Partnership. Literally, do you know what koinonia means? Participation. Fellowship is an offshoot of the actual partnership and the participation in a community setting, participating with someone else. So look at the way that the the, uh, contemporary English version translates that same passage. God can be trusted, and he chose you to be partners with his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians 1, starting at verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the very first day until now. NASB. But that's that same word. Participation there is still koinonia. So the international standard version, I thank my God every time I remember you always praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So maybe if partnership is a little too offensive because it implies some sort of parity with God, then maybe participation is the one. It doesn't imply equality. But both of these words point to Engagement an actual engagement in a process with God. And Jesus is absolutely calling us to be engaged. we're We're called to be engaged in his way, which he says is identical with him, to be engaged with him, engaged with the way. At every turn, he's always saying this over and over and over again in as many ways as he can possibly say to try to get the point across. You know, show us the way. I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. Engaged in this way, engaged with me, connected with me, taking into him and herself all that I am and letting that reanimate from the inside out. That is this way, engaged. He says, if you follow me, if you follow my ways, if you live as I live and love as I love, you're going to know a truth, and that truth is going to make you free. If-then statements. If you will engage with me. Not sit and think. Taste and see. Engage with me. He says, if you will do that, these things that you see me doing, you're going to do these things. And greater things than these, if you engage, if you get on this way, if you let everything that animates me animates you. He says to ask, seek, and knock. Right? Right? Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. But when we put that back into Aramaic, it even gives a deeper idea of what Jesus is trying to talk to us about because he's giving us another process to ask, selu, in Aramaic. It's It's related to selah, the word for prayer. And prayer is to lean into, to incline, to clear a space. That's the idea behind it. It was a hunter's term. You know, you clear a space, set your trap, cover it back over with leaves, and then retire quietly and silently into the blinds to wait expectantly for something to happen. Isn't it interesting that they would use a hunting term for prayer? We've talked about how the ancient languages have small vocabularies, and so these words had to do all these different duties. But when you see the connection of this term, this real-world term of hunting, which was absolutely a survival technique for them, right? Right? and then they connect that to prayer, you get the insight into the way that they looked at prayer. Prayer wasn't something that was just recited. Prayer wasn't even words at all. Prayer was that state of being expectant in a cleared space and waiting for presence. That's a whole different idea. And salu is related to that whole idea. To ask is not a passive asking. It's not a casual asking. You know, you want to go to the movies next week? It's an asking that is more akin to a police interrogation. There is an urgency behind it. There is a desire behind it. There is an aching to know the answer behind salute. It's an inclining into. It's that cleared space. It's that wanting to know something so deeply that the desire is driving you. And then to seek, beah, means to search diligently from the inside to the outside. To leave no stone unturned, to start at the deepest core of our being, to be willing to clear out that space again and search inside to out. And then to knock was the strangest one when I first encountered it. Kosh is the word. And it literally means a tent peg, to hammer a tent peg. And I thought, what in the world? Or alternately, and just as unhelpfully, it can mean to sound a musical note. Okay, what the heck is going on here? How does this help me? But think about what's happening. When you sound that musical note, you know, when Vernon plucks that bass string and it just rumbles the room, he's created something that is real. He's created something that everyone can experience. When you put in the tent pegs, you are creating a space in which living can go on, relationship can go on. The idea of knocking is the realization of something that can be shared to ask diligently, to seek from inside to outside, and then see the manifestation of something real happening in your life. This is the process that Jesus is talking about. This is the engagement. It's not passive. It's nothing you do just sitting on your couch. It's something that you have to really move into and move through. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Now, I rarely read from Revelation, so pay attention. Revelation 3, starting at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy. And I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Ew. Now this is normally interpreted in such a way that hot is something that is good, right? Hot is something that is passionate we would say on fire for god right that is that is usually understood as something good and cold is the opposite of all of that cold is bad cold is godless cold is lawless if you want to look at that and then right in the middle here's lukewarm you got something good you got something bad and in the middle is lukewarm but that's even worse than the bad right because what to be lukewarm is to be I guess, passionless, indifferent, numb. How many of you heard it interpreted that way? Pretty much? Okay. It's always good to take a historical perspective and see if there's another way that we can understand what's going on here. Laodicea was sandwiched between two other cities that were only about six miles apart. To the north and northwest, there was Hierapolis, and to the south, there was Colossae, the, the city that Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. Hierapolis was famous for mineral springs that came up through the vents, hot water, and so people came from all over to be able to bathe in the hot springs and they had medicinal value and this and that and the other thing. Colossae was famous for their cold, clear springs, fresh drinking water. Laodicea had none of these really... Special uh, springs of water. They had rivers and they had streams, but they had an aqueduct that would bring water from Colisee, um north to where they were. But by the time the water, the cold water, got from Calais to to Allow to see a guess what? It was tepid. It was lukewarm by then, and it and it, by some accounts, it had gathered uh, some objectionable flavors along the way, shall we say? So it wasn't so good to to drink. Now. It's interesting, I've read that over and over again, and other scholars adamantly say this was not the case. It didn't mean that at all. What it really meant was that when a really good host served wine to his guests, he would either chill it with snow, or he would add warm water to it to make it warm. Only the poor and unthinking host would serve it room temperature, where it had no kind of flavor or value to it. I don't know which one is right. Take the pick of the one that you like better. But here's the point that it's making. Cold is not bad. Cold is good. Hot is good. They both are active. They are both full of passion. They are both engaged. What is not good is the disengaged place, the lukewarm place. Lukewarm isn't in the middle between two poles. Lukewarm is the pole against the other two. And what Jesus is really talking about here is the engagement Be hot. Be cold. Be something positive, affirmative. Be something passionate. Be something that just comes out of your very soul. Be convinced of something that you can state from your core, even if you can't prove it, because you have lived it, and you know that you know that this thing is true. Don't be this over here. Taking things as hearsay. Taking things third person. Not really thinking through things like the Jews who didn't test and study the way the Bereans did. He's saying, that is the place you don't want to be. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. The church has increasingly emphasized an intellectual understanding of Scripture, of doctrine, and the managing of unlawful behavior as the be-all and end-all of what our spiritual journeys are about. Get that? It's mental and it's legal. We have to understand things in the correct way. What's correct? The way we tell you is correct. And it's only this slice right here. This is correct. Don't look behind, you know, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain over there and don't go over here. Just stay right here. This is correct. Understand that correct. Believe it. Mental agreement, mental assent. And then, manage your behavior. Make sure that you don't break the contract in any way. Increasingly, this is where the church has taken us. We were discouraged to engage and experience in anything that ran outside of that. And we were discouraged to go within ourselves to become convinced of what we're convinced of because we might be led into error. All of these things have shut us down and put us into these mental and legal pigeonholes. This lack of engagement is the lukewarmness that Jesus is talking about. You know, I've counseled a pretty good amount of couples and married couples in my 25 years here. And if a couple is still fighting, I know that there's still hope for that couple. It's the couple that comes in where nothing is left. It's just all grayed out. There's no feeling. There's no nothing. To try to resurrect those ashes, that's difficult. Be hot. Be cold. Still have passion desire something so deeply that you're willing to fight about it, fight for it, that's a healthier place than completely just falling down and numbing out and not caring anymore, having no desire anymore. Jesus is calling us to engage in life. He doesn't emphasize mental abstract concepts. He doesn't emphasize a theology at all. And he doesn't hold the law up as absolute either. He says we're going to fulfill it, but we're going to fill it fulfill it by engaging in life, not standing behind a legal fig leaf. He's taking us in other directions that are processed experientially into relationship, to experience things as they really are, and not as we would like them to be in some ideal abstract concept. He's bringing us down into the streets of our lives. He's taking us outside the classroom. He's taking us outside the safety of the little fences that we put up all around ourselves. How will we know when we're engaged? How would we know that? To me that's kind of like asking how we know when we're born again. How do we know that we're engaged, we're experiencing things differently? Mary and I were just talking about this yesterday. The only thing I can tell you what I'm convinced of what I've experienced myself is that it's a sense of a heightened awareness that's the best way that I can put it. When I am engaged, when I am living in that born again experience, when I am in kingdom and aware of it, it's like all the colors are brighter. I see details that I used to miss. I am fascinated by just the way the light plays on the trees that normally I would just drive right past and not even notice in in this tunnel that's only this big because it's revolving around the thoughts that I'm thinking in my head. And suddenly everything opens up and the peripheral becomes as real as the center vision and I can see things. And the clouds are just incredible when they're in the sky. And I can feel the temperature of of the air. And if I'm having a conversation from them, you know, I can... See their eyes, and I can hear what they're saying. It's just a whole different, heightened sense of everything that I experienced when I'm really engaged, when I'm really present, when all four are on the floor and I'm really got the traction that's going forward. And I think that's the best I can do to try to explain it to you. You know, it's just this sense, maybe a sense of. Adventure, a sense of excitement about what is coming. Sometimes there's a sense of well-being attached to all of that and sometimes there's a sense of disturbance attached to all that because I realize there's something else that I have to lay down in order to really be present. That's how it feels for me to be engaged. How do you know when you're convinced of something? How do you know when your engagement has produced real conviction That's the second question. And I think the only way that I can describe that to you is I know that I'm convinced of something when I'm no longer looking for proof. When I'm no longer running around to the next book and the next speaker and the next this and next that and trying to understand and still worrying over the understanding. I just can let that go. But I think even more importantly, I know that I'm convinced of something when I no longer feel the need to persuade anyone else to be convinced of what I'm convinced of. That's the key. Emery Tang didn't need to convince me of a thing. He wouldn't even try. He wouldn't even listen to my complaint. This is what I'm convinced of. Go become convinced of what you're convinced of. When you're really convinced, you don't need anyone's approval, and you realize, I can't prove this to you even if I tried anyway. This is the result of my engagement. This is the result of my participation and my partnership with God. It was for me and for me alone. You need to go do that. And so my conviction allows me to allow you the permission, the encouragement to engage your own journeys and become as convinced about whatever you're convinced of that allows you to move through your day to encourage The experience of this knowing. Jesus not only gave us permission to color outside the lines, he not only gave us permission to have this personal engagement, even at the risk of being led into error. Because if our desire is strong enough, ask, seek, and knock, we're going to get to the truth if that's really what we want if we're not just trying to prove what we set out and what we desire in our minds, if we're really willing to empty out, there's no way that we're going to end up anywhere but at the center of all God's things. Jesus not only gave us permission to do that, He said that unless you're willing to do exactly that, you can never follow Me. Because that's what this way is all about. That's what the only way to Father is all about. Personal, passionate, passionate, engagement. This is his way. One more passage from the book. Have we cut all the way to the bone in our search for the truth of God's intent and purpose? Have we allowed that intent and purpose to become the deepest conviction of our hearts? Are those convictions bringing us to the smile point, to the place where love is no longer hard work but outright play? Is fear no longer ruling our choices and attitudes? Are we really living out in the clear countryside of our transformation, far from the smoggy suburbs of hell and the fear of hell? And are we living the gospel for all to see, not just believing in it as a concept, but preaching that gospel continuously and only using words were necessary, as the founder of E.T.'s Franciscan order pleaded. These can be our benchmarks, clues to knowing whether the truth we know is the truth that has the power to make us free. If we're afraid of looking heretical in someone's eyes, we will never ask the first question, postulate the first idea, or set out on our own journey to truth. Thank God, Yeshua, and his followers weren't afraid to be called heretics or drunkards or gluttons or Francis of Assisi, Galileo, Martin Luther, or a 17-year-old boy challenging his father's beliefs. If we're afraid to ask the most basic, most common-sense questions, we'll never be able to answer the most relevant question, Who am I? Which itself only has meaning as we come to know ultimate reality in the person of God. And without knowing who God is, the true radical nature of love will never enter the kingdom, live the transformed life toward which Jesus is trying to guide us, and will never understand how God and love, kingdom, and transformed life are really all the same thing. Find one. Find them all. Let's pray. Father, you are the source of life, of everything. You are truth personified. We can't know your truth any other way but by falling into your embrace. And so, Lord, this morning we're praying once again to give us everything that we need. I'll scratch that. You've already given us everything we need. Help us to use everything that you've already given us to engage, to have that passionate desire for more that spurs us on, to leave no stone unturned, and to enjoy the ride and the adventure of where we end up. Always moving closer to you. Father, thank you for the tools. Thank you for the models that you've given us. Thank you for your love and your presence. And never let us forget, we can't do any of this except that you've done it first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's all stand.